Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders Bristol and recorded at the Burst Radio Studios. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, I spoke with Lorraine McElroy, the systems engineer at Airbus, the commercial aeroplane manufacturer. We had a great conversation about her career and why she enjoys it so much, the range of exciting developments on the horizon in the aviation industry, and how school students can learn more about whether a career in engineering is right for them. As always, I started by asking Lorraine to introduce herself and describe how she got where she is today. Hello, I'm Lorraine McElroy. I work for Airbus in the Chief Engineers team. I'm a systems engineer. I've had uh, quite a journey since uh, leaving the University of Bristol. I studied mechanical engineering. I finished university and carried on. I was offered a research assistant post at the University of Bristol, which I took up, also in mechanical engineering. It was uh, meant to be three years at, and write up the work as a PhD, but uh, I completed the work in just over a year. So I decided to write it up as an MSc and I went out into the real, real world. At the time, I actually applied for both accountancy and also uh, jobs in engineering. I got offered an accountancy position first, which I accepted, but then I got offered a job in engineering and uh, it just held a little bit more interest for me. So I accepted that and uh, declined the other position before I'd even started Mm -hmm. and started work in engineering and I worked for a small company just outside of Bristol making and qualifying uh, military actuators for aircraft and moved to Airbus in 2001. Since I joined Airbus, I've worked in landing gear, I've worked in airworthiness, and now I'm working on the fuel system. And I've had so many good and fun opportunities, which I hope to share a little bit with you this afternoon. That's brilliant. I'm considering going into maybe doing research after I'm finished with my degree currently. I'm excited to hear the possibility of getting it done in a third of the time allocated. What, what, what was the research and how did you manage to get it done so quickly? So it was to do with um, robotics and I was looking at um, tools for surgery, so minimally invasive surgery. And we were sort of developing the master-slave type of systems and well, the ultimate aim, I think, of you know being able to have a surgeon in one place or the patient mm-hmm. somewhere else uh, to you know optimise those skills anywhere in the world, essentially. So the master-slave system that we developed, it was um, an EU project. So it was working with Europe at, the, at that time in the late 90s. And we developed the tools. So our part here was actually to develop the hardware for that which we did and provided that into the project uh, quite early on. So there was an opportunity to increase the amount of work that I could do to, to almost sort of bulk it up to become a PhD, but uh, I felt it wasn't as structured as I would like, you know, would have liked it to have been. So I decided, right, let me just write up what I've done now and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and see what else I can do. So the next step after that was what, remind me, was that working for the smaller company? It was working for quite a small company. It was quite uh, quite unique. So I was born and bred in London and I was very much used to, to, you know, having a really um, useful local transport system. And here I was in Bristol at university. I just got used to this and I took a job that was just outside of Bristol for quite a small company. It was essentially, it was one building, which was the design office. The building next door was the manufacturer and test. 
and and the one after that was sort of our returns unit. So it was a really small place, uh, fantastic for getting hands-on experience, um, meeting with the people, the manufacturing engineers and the um, design engineers and, you know, all of the different aspects of an engineering firm, all in one small place and uh, working on actuators, doing a life extension project and also developing new actuators as well, which was interesting for me. So it was fascinating to actually have hands-on experience and the design experience all in the same place. Lots of hard work, great experience and a really good start for an engineering career. Yeah, so actuators is, I guess, the technical engineering term for just a motor in general, is that right? It's basically something, you're moving something that needs to be moved, yes. So you're, you're having the actual... A mechanical device that will actually do that, yes. Mm. So I'm sure in that fairly intensive, uh, very small experience at that company, you learned an awful lot that you just didn't learn in your engineering degree or you had to pick up things very quickly. Is there anything in particular that just kind of shocked you when you first experienced it? Um, well, everything was very expensive. So one of, one of the projects that we had to work on was a life extension. So a particular part had been designed and tested to be in service for a certain number of hours and that particular aircraft was still flying it was doing exceptionally well and the people that had that aircraft said well we want to be able to fly it for longer Um, because it was only qualified to a certain amount we had to get these parts back on test and we had to create these rigs none of the original equipment was still there we had to design these rigs put these actuators onto these rigs and, and test them again and to design a rig and actually get it made you know there was there was a lot of aspects of what I was doing at university when actually let's just how do you actually get something done on time how do you put it together buying all the equipment for things also expensive and getting an actuator you know it's very very expensive to, to buy you know an actuator to put back on test and then to actually test it until you actually break it is quite satisfying mm-hmm. as well so yes I had a lot of good experience I really I remember the customer uh, coming over for one of the tests that we were doing and we were doing a, vib- a vibration test literally shaking this thing as as much as it could go over different frequencies and uh, one of the connectors that was supplying it with hydraulic fluid broke and it was there was hydraulic fluid everywhere and uh, this guy literally got off the plane came along witnessed this test saw me get covered in hydraulic fluid and then got back in his taxi went back to the airport and flew back so uh, he said well I did see it on test so in his mind that was a success the actuator was fine it was just one of the little connectors that had broken so all of that I put down to experience and certainly is you know a memorable part of my career from that time. Yeah I think in terms of the the sheer cost of things it's something that we're not necessarily used to in everyday life just the sheer level of high performance of every single material that's required in in the aviation industry it's just unbelievable and it's and it's one of the reasons why it's so successful as an industry in terms of safety really it's yes. it's just everything is manufactured to such a high specification it's well, quite incredible right. yeah yes. and so where i am now if that's only you know magnified in in what things cost and today i am still surprised at what certain things cost to go on aircraft and what operators are willing to pay to have as you say that level of uh, safety on their aircraft yeah. So in terms of where you are today, which is Airbus, um, I think a lot of people will have heard of Airbus. They manufacture the big, a lot of the big airliners that we fly on every day when we go on holiday. Um, well, not every day, I wish. <laughs> um, so yeah, describe again what your role is and what, what the team is that you're in and what your kind of job title is right now. Okay. So I work in the chief engineers team. The chief engineers work... Um, 
very closely with how I see it, you know, most of the different departments within Airbus. So I work very closely with the actual engineering team. Um, my role is to task what work needs to be done. The engineering team review the work that is to be done, perform all of those tasks and deliver what the chief engineers team uh, have requested they deliver. And we get to review and approve or challenge uh, the work that the engineering team have done. Because um, on the aircraft, um, so here in Filton, we, we make the wing. I like to see it sort of very simply that we also um, make, you know, the whole aspect of the wing. So inside the wing is a fuel system, underneath the wing or near abouts, thereabouts are the uh, landing gear. So that's everything that we're responsible for here in the UK as part of Airbus. So when we, we put out a task to um, our engineering colleagues, we like to see, uh, you know, what, what they're doing. We um, buy some of the equipment for the fuel system, but for the wing, we design it all ourselves. So because we buy some of the parts, we're also interacting with some of our, well, our key suppliers that supply parts for our aircraft. We also then have to deal with what things should cost and the finance side of things. So that's actually quite a big part of it as well. When we've got projects, you know, we really interact with our project management team and the program to say what's going to be done and by when and are you happy with this? We estimate, you know, what that's going to cost in terms of engineering hours for things like the tooling, the manufacturing side. So all of that gets brought together with the chief engineer team who actually have that technical um, authority to say what we are and what we are not going to be doing on the aircraft. So for me, it's a really interesting job. You you um, interact with all different types of people through the business um, on a daily basis and not just within the UK, that, that's transnational as well, which is obviously very exciting. Mm. So we do a lot of our communication at our desks, you know, through WebEx means, but sometimes through video conferences and sometimes in person. So there are those opportunities as well to travel the world. Yeah, I think to people whose lives are maybe just embedded in maths at the moment when they're at school, that's quite a satisfying description of what an engineer might do because that is quite devoid of maths, really, what you do on an everyday basis. There is space in the engineering industry for people with a very varied range of skills. It sounds like people skills are super important in that job. Absolutely. For this type of role, the people skills are absolutely key. But in, in all of the roles that I interact with within the business, communication is absolutely key for, for, for that. Um, with that said, because you are, I, I have been, you know, working as an engineer as well. Those math skills, those engineering skills, are absolutely necessary um, to actually do your work. But once you've done your work, you need to be able to explain what you've done, how you've done it, how you've got to the conclusions you have, and therefore, you know, it comes back to to those interpersonal skills as well of being able to explain your work and justify what you've done. And I remember the first experiences I had of that were at university when I was, you know, writing up my reports and then we actually had to present them and we didn't have many opportunities at university to do that. So to be able to, you know, present then was really that first step in exactly how the real world is. That's really quite interesting. Obviously, I'm still at university now, everyone on the podcast team as well. In terms of this presentation, these maybe soft skills, what is it that people who are still in education or very early in their career maybe don't get? They might have the technical skills, but what really shows someone who's got experience when they're presenting their work? Is it a certain style of delivery or, or pacing or something, or is it 
Something else. Um, I think breathing is actually really <laughs> helpful. Uh, yeah. Really deep breath before you start. And although you may say something once, uh, don't take it for granted that that has been heard. Mm. If it's a really important point, definitely say it more than once. Um, you know, possibly say, this is what I'm going to tell you, then tell them and then say, well, this mm. is what I've just told you, really to get that message across. If you've got something to say, it's important to so make sure you're heard. I think that's probably most useful piece of advice and don't 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 be worried about it everybody's nervous about standing up and talking in front of a group of people but the more you do it the more you get used to it and if you enjoy it then you know mm. it just becomes second nature and i'm sure if you do it enough you'll get to the point where you will enjoy it and it's a really really useful skill to have so i think maybe you would describe yourself i guess as a systems engineer and this term has come up quite a lot in our previous podcast and i'm wary of the fact that we haven't really defined it yet. So maybe have a go at defining what a systems engineer is because it's quite a general term. All right. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So I work on the fuel system and I'll, I'll just put it into context. So with our aircraft, as it flies around, it's in service. We've got, a, um, on the aircraft I work on, we've got about 220 or so of them flying around in service at the moment. A lot of people have this sort of misconception that, you, as an example, you take delivery of your car uh, and you're off driving your car around. It's something a lot of people can relate to. And then you hear that there are thousands of people working on the type of car that you're driving around. And people get quite confused as to why you're actually doing that. Is that absolutely required? So with the aircraft, we've delivered the aircraft. As I say, the type of aircraft I, I work on, there are about 220 of them flying around at the moment in service. So why are there thousands of, of people working on it? And the reason for that is that we're constantly monitoring the aircraft. We're constantly looking at, what, at what's actually happening with them with respect to its reliability. So we've got the aircraft full of, of its equipment and its systems, and we're looking at how it's actually performing. And every month we have a very detailed breakdown of everything that's happened on that aircraft. So things do happen and they're designed so that when they happen, there is always a backup system in place. So if something happens uh, on an aircraft, for example, the type of things that I would see would be a pump failure. So some, the pumps are there to some of the pumps to pump the fuel to the engine. If that fails, we'll hear about it. But we know that, that right next to the pump that's meant to be doing its job is an identical pump fitted on the aircraft, identical in every way that automatically kicks in and is its backup system. If that fails as well, we're onto the tertiary backup and we have that as well. But we are constantly monitoring what's happening to that aircraft. However, at the moment, we are looking at a new type of pump that we can introduce on the aircraft that's retrofitable. That means we can go into the aircraft that already have it and just put these new pumps in. Now, for that to happen, we need to, to make sure that that particular component will interact correctly, will have the correct power from the power distribution centers on it, will have the correct wiring through all the wiring that, that's on the aircraft and the wiring system, um, and will fit within the wing structure as it is today. So as a systems engineer, although I'm working on that one pump, I'm actually looking at what else that pump is interacting with on that aircraft. And all of that combines with having the operational reliability of the aircraft and that overall reliability of the aircraft where we want it in Airbus and where our operators and the airlines are demanding that we have that reliability. Yeah, so a systems engineer can't really have their head in the sand or, or look, at, look at one small area. They exactly have to consider right. everything around them. That's which, exactly right, yes. Yeah. Which, yeah, which is a, a real skill that has to be cultivated over time, I guess. It's quite easy to, to focus on your area and 
and not everyone else's. Yeah. So you, the impact of what you know one component can be or one piece of equipment can be quite huge with respect to its impact on the whole aircraft. But that makes it more interesting, and that's why being able to talk to all the different other systems on the aircraft and understand that interaction is is really important. Hmm. I think one thing that's quite interesting you talked about you're thinking about uh, developing or integrating a new type of pump into the aircraft these are kind of evidence of things that are changing in aviation over time what are some of the major trends in aviation in airbus in kind of commercial flight in how aircraft is improving over time maybe people might look at traditional commercial aircraft and say well they've still got two wings are they really that different to how they were 50 years ago, what has changed from 50 years ago in the aircraft that we fly in? I'm going to take you back a little bit further than that. So <laughs> it was a conversation I was having recently. So if we looked at where we were, let's say, 100 years ago, there was yeah. a, a flight with just two people. And we take the box kite. So here in Bristol, if you get the chance to go down to the museum there and you look up, there is a box kite aircraft. And that's one of the things I like to draw upon when I go into local schools as a STEM ambassador. I say, go in there and look up and look at that box kite area. And how would you feel if you were to fly on that aircraft? Would you feel safe? Could you go far? Could you go with your family? Could you take the luggage in your bucket and spade if you were going on holiday? And you basically get to what we now take for granted as a a modern airline that takes us where we want to go safely with all the people that we want to travel with. So that's over 100 years. Over the last 50 years, we've been able to do that a lot more safely. We've been able to do that with much, much more efficiency and our footprint in the world, our carbon footprint is becoming ever so much more important in what we're doing and how ethically we're doing that with respect to the environment. So that's really important too. Some of the key things that we see come in are the alternatives that we could use for uh, processes that we're using in materials and actually the actual materials themselves and how we can make things, make them cheaper, make them with less impact to the environment and, and things you know like that. Um, and obviously in my area, the fuel efficiency as well, how we can make um, fuel flying um, you know, as environmentally friendly as possible, using as less, uh, less amount of fuel as possible as well. I guess there must be enormous pressure from governments to constantly be refining and improving all the processes like, at every single stage in the so aviation there are, industry. There are constantly changes that we have to adhere to in terms of our processes and the materials that we are using. But with that and us meeting those new requirements, we're also trying to obviously be ahead of the game to say, well, what else can we do on our aircraft? And one of the key areas that we see coming in at the moment is the use of additive labor manufacturing onto aircraft and aircraft components and how we can use those and use that type of uh, technology on an aircraft and use it in a way that it, we know it's fully qualified in a, you know the ways that traditional parts would have been made and also with the spares market as well if you've got a, a print where you just hit print and your parts made how do we know that that's going to be the same if those parts could be you know made on the black market or something like that to be able to make sure that we safeguard ourselves with the new technologies that we're putting on aircraft so additive layer manufacturing is another word for three printing basically 3d printing yes. so what will what would that enable what would that allow us to do in in aerospace and maybe outside of that as well so where we are at the moment we're seeing huge amounts of benefits with respect to weight you can make your part um, with just the material where that material needs to be and cut out all of the excess really quite easily so that's a key thing that we're seeing with this it's also the time to manufacture is potentially can be cut down significantly 
and um, the, the types of things that you could make and shapes that you wouldn't get with traditional manufacturing methods are really quite interesting as well. So the way in which you think about printing these things and how you know you you form them it's a different way of thinking and it's new and it's mm. exciting and we're very keen to be able to adopt new technology as much as possible on the aircraft and this is certainly one of the ways that we're, we're looking at doing that so these are all developments that are in the pipeline i guess it's also interesting to think about what's what's maybe never going to happen in aviation are we ever going to have a fully 3d printed plane is that not possible? <laughs> it is It is going to be possible to, to 3D print, I would say, a lot of components on your aircraft. Um, it's also something that is in the aerospace industry still, you know, it's still developing and it's developing at a really fast pace. Um, and again, I go back to, you know, in the hundred years, what we've done with aviation, we're looking at this new technology of 3D printing. Who's to say you know, where we're going to be in just a few years' time? We've already achieved so much and progressed so quickly with things that I see that this is going to be uh, you know, on aircraft in quite a big way in not too distant future. Yeah. And is it likely that we're going to have aircraft that go much faster than they do right now, maybe back to how Concorde was? Or is the reason why aircraft tend to travel at the speed that they do right now? So Concorde, um, it, it always comes up. It's always so yeah. interesting. And Concorde's <laughs> special because, you know, it, it was different. It looked different. It was different. And it really, really pushed the engineering boundaries. And that's what's really exciting about it. Anyone, because um, Airbus has a lot of engineers that have been there a while. And anyone you meet that's ever worked on Concorde will tell you they've worked on Concorde. Mm. It is a badge of honor. Uh, and rightly so as well. It, it is different. It has pushed that the, those boundaries. I see that that obviously the fuel consumption with Concorde was was an issue. It it did need a lot of fuel even to get to the runway. Was you know it it did use a lot. And people generally are more mindful of that now. And if there is something that they can do to influence the you know the impact of the of flying on the environment, they will they will consider that. So having more environmentally friendly planes out there that will fly you to where you want to go for, you know, in a much more fuel efficient way uh, is going to be part of the competition that we have. With that said, being able to use new technologies, being able to make your aircraft lighter will only help with the fuel efficiency of the aircraft. You're going to get there. You're going to be using less fuel because your aircraft is lighter. Um, and when the aircraft's lighter, you've got more opportunity then to have a further, longer distance, bigger range. I think that will become more popular too. So we've got, got some very long flights now being as, you know, normal routes across the world. And that's where we're going. We're really pushing to get people where they want to go as quickly as possible and obviously safely as possible um, with, you know, as much efficiency as possible as well. I guess that's a great great example of the systems engineering there. You might want to prioritise speed, but you've also got environmental efficiency to care about and you can't necessarily have both. Sometimes you can't yeah. have both, but yeah. obviously times are changing, technology is changing, and mm. we're pushing, for, we want it all. Yeah, <laughs> great. So maybe going back to your own career and, and looking further back to your motivations behind getting where you are today. You said you did mechanical engineering at I university, did, yes. so you didn't do aer aerospace engineering, no, which Bristol does offer. So maybe... Why is it that you didn't do aerospace from day one? Or um, what's changed and how have your motivations um, modified over time to get where you are right now? So I would say, um, very honestly, I enjoyed maths. Now, that's 
quite different to being really good at maths. Mm -hmm. It's a different statement. I really enjoyed maths. I enjoyed, um, as I see it today still, the the black and whiteness of of maths. It's either right or it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that. Art was totally different for me. I never knew when I submitted work whether it was going to be a really good mark or not. (laughs) And uh, that's why I enjoyed maths. I knew exactly where I stood and the sciences as well, especially physics and chemistry. So as a as a student, as a, an A-level student, I remember that uh, maths, because I was good at maths, the next day, well, why don't you do a degree in maths? And the family side of things as well that uh, influenced that in some ways and that anyone that was good at maths in the family was going to become an accountant. And mm-hmm. what else could you do if you were good at maths and there were, there were no other options out there for you? And it was my sixth form college that offered uh, a, a lunchtime um, discussion on a career in engineering or studying engineering. And at that time, I remember it was offered to me that if I was to study engineering, I could have all of those doors open to me at the end of my engineering degree uh, for different careers. And if I did an engineering degree, I'd have all of those doors plus some extra ones open. Mm. So it didn't close any doors. If anything, it kept my options open. And it was a slightly more practical than just an, uh, a maths degree. So I thought, well, why not? Let's, let's have a go. So I came here to the University of Bristol. And I remember when I first started here, I remember being dropped off, and my parents driving off with this empty car and feeling quite overwhelmed that, oh my goodness, what have I done? It's engineering. Is this really what I want to do? And the lectures were a massive step up to what I'd been used to. And I thought, oh, I really do think I'm, I'm out of my league here. I don't think this is the right decision. But I stuck with it. I got into the university life, which was very different from uh, living at home in London. Uh, got used to the routine and persevered with it and really began to enjoy the subjects uh, that I was doing and the different topics that we covered in mechanical engineering. And as I say, as I went through that, I got to the end of my degree. And after the master's, I did still have that query about accountancy or engineering. And I had really enjoyed the engineering work I did. I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the projects we did. I enjoyed getting results and interpreting them, making decisions and giving my opinion on what those results meant. And I'm still doing a lot of that now in in what I do and having an issue where you investigate it, you find out what you think it is and you give your judgment on what you think could be the the issue or the problem or something that could help. And I still enjoy that challenge now and essentially that's what I'm still doing. So you're also extremely interested in making sure that other people uh, who should consider engineering do consider engineering. You said that you go into schools as a STEM ambassador. So what's your main message that you tell people? Is it something along the lines of you can have an extremely varied and, and rich career? Yeah, it's, I think it actually started, um, I think my daughter was at, at primary school and they had a key stage two topic called Giants. And uh, I got invited in at the end of term um, to to a happy hour, which as a student obviously meant something completely different to (laughs) to what it meant being a parent. So I got invited in to happy hour at the primary school. And across the back wall, the children had painted an A380. And uh, I said, well, what's that doing? You never told me you were doing that. And she said, oh, yes, we've heard about this big aircraft and we painted it because it's a giant aircraft. And it was at that point that I said, well, I can come in and talk a little bit about the aircraft to the children. And having 
in my career up until that point done presentations you know to, to probably audiences of up to 100 or more people going into a group of um 35 year olds was absolutely terrifying Mm -hmm. but I went in and explained to them you know what it is that I do and there was just so much enthusiasm and so many questions about the aircraft and what I do and the fact that I wasn't an air hostess that was really interesting as well (laughs) and you know if you work on an aircraft what else could you do other than a pilot or an air hostess so all of that just really ignited my my passion to say Look, there's not very much known about this and this is in the city that we live and work how can children not know that there's an option and asking young people you know what do you want to be when you grow up um, most of them would pick on a role model that they have met in their lives so their teachers or the librarian or a nurse or a doctor and it would always be from someone they've met either through the, their lives or characters on tv or through family members but nobody was really choosing engineering. So I thought, well, let's start talking to them about what it is I do and the exciting things I do. And I um, put up pictures, photographs of me, you know, on an aircraft or flying, you know, on the A380 or stood by one of its wheels just to give that concept of size and talk to them about the types of things that we do and how, what we consider and how we use biomimicry to, to look at aircraft in our designs and the materials and what we've learned from nature and what we're learning on our aircraft and really linking it into things that they could understand. And so as a STEM ambassador, as my children grew, I started at that that young age and now they're into their teens. Um, So I still get um, opportunities to go into schools, um, sometimes on a career networking where you're going and I I have not done speed dating but apparently it's like that you sit down and you have two minutes and students come up and interview you about your career to see if it's something that would interest them and just giving them that as an option I find it a really varied career I've got to travel around the world um, meet different airlines fly on our fantastic aircraft which is great Mm -hmm. I've flown in our aircraft into Heathrow and you know walked through um, all of the aircraft when it was first going into Heathrow for its uh, terminal five trials I get to do some really interesting things I get to meet really interesting people I get to work in an, in a way, in a type of way that I really enjoy um, with the communication and interacting with different people, lots and lots of talking, which is obviously, you know, that you can tell type of person I am. And it's local to me. I have um, the chance to, to work uh, half days on a Friday. So my work-life balance is better than most other working moms that I know. So I boast about that a lot. And uh, I have fantastic opportunities where I am to develop if I want, carry on at the same pace or work in a completely different area in the business too. So yes, I try and promote that message. It's fun, it's varied, and it is really exciting as well. That's brilliant. I think you were talking about speaking to really quite young children. In my particular experience, that wasn't really the issue for me. I was saying when I was five years old that I wanted to be an inventor. I didn't actually oh, know the right. word engineer. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I wish I actually did know the word engineer, <laughs> but I kind of forgot for a good 10 years that that was actually deep down what I wanted to do. It might be that other people are like that as well. You almost need to remember what you wanted to be as a kid because that's actually quite a good indicator of your fundamental tendencies. That's right, yes. Yeah, making things, working things out, inventing. It's all, you know, you get the opportunities to do that in a job and be paid for it. So it's absolutely brilliant. Highly recommend it. Mm, Yeah, in terms of um, people who are maybe unsure about whether to apply to engineering or not, what do you think people could do maybe to really firm up that decision? How could they know 
whether or not they should make take the plunge and apply because it's a difficult degree to do. It's a difficult job in, in a lot of ways and there's a lot of decisions out there. I think most degrees are going to be difficult. Mm. If you're going to go to university, you have the difficult de- degree to contend with plus all that other financial burden, which I, I didn't have, you know, fortunately uh, that when I was going through that process. I would say that there are opportunities with companies uh, to go in, find out what they do, and actually, um, just if you can, find someone that works there, get in touch with the careers department and say, can I come in and shadow someone for a day? Can I come in for a week of work experience? I've got four or five work experience students with me for a whole week, mm-hmm. week after next. And I do that every year, if not twice a year, just because uh, from my perspective, as a student, I'd see these engineering companies and I'd see the buildings, drive past them. I knew where Rolls Royce was, I knew where Airbus or BA Systems at the time you know, was based. But I thought, what's it like inside? And that can make a real difference as well. It's a very, it's a lovely building to be in. It's really, it's all open plan. There are loads of meeting rooms, different conferencing facilities. There's a real buzz about the place. All different types of activities go on in the workplace as well, which I think is a bit of a bonus. But it really helps to have that insight to be able to say, well, what's it like in that building? What you know, you get the same thing when you apply for university. You really get an understanding of it when you come for the open day and you actually have a look around and think, I'd like to go there. I really like this place. I can imagine myself in that building, you know, studying that engineering degree. And it's exactly the same in the workplace. Try and find out as much as you can about it. Get onto your social networking and, and see how you can find someone that maybe works there. Find someone that, that, you know, works in a company that you're interested in. It's quite often I get my friends that say their children are interested. Don't be afraid to use the links. Make that network, make those links. Find someone that works there and say, can I just come in and chat about it, see what it's like, have a walk around. I've done that for loads and loads of students and I'm more than happy to do it. And I guarantee you there isn't one single person in, in certainly in Airbus that if you said, can I come in and have a look around, that they wouldn't be proud to show you around and show you what it was like. So don't be afraid to ask. So it's all very well reading books or listening to our podcast, but really first-hand experience is the way that you really learn. It goes so with stop so, listening to so many things. It goes yeah. with so many things. You can, you wouldn't think of buying your house without going to actually have a look at it and mm. see what it's like. So this is your career. Go and find out as much as you can about it. Go and have a look. This is, you know, an investment in you. So it's really important that you just... It might be a little bit uncomfortable. Just, yeah, go on. might be awkward. Say, can I can I have a look, please? Mm. And, and, and do it. And the worst thing that will happen is that you'll probably say... Well, maybe this isn't, you might say, this isn't for me, but at least you're making that informed decision based on yeah, actual facts. Yeah, well, that's a useful finding in itself. Yeah, Learning it what you don't want to yeah, do is yeah. as useful. That's right. Yeah, so that's that's a really good kind of final point, I think. So, uh, yeah, so Lorraine, thank you very much for coming to speak to me. This has been really good. So, cheers. Thank you. Thank again. you. Thank you, Tom. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or to find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud. Online. Not on FM.
and certainly not on digital. This is Burst Radio. Bristol University's radio station. Radio station. Radio station. Radio station.